We're in Romans chapter 13 today. So the same action at one time can be perfectly fitting and at another time be completely out of place. So driving fast is great on Sunday afternoon at the Texas Motor Speedway. Not such a good idea on Sunday morning on Interstate 35 north of Fort Worth. Just ask Dale Earnhardt, who learned that lesson from a state trooper a couple weeks ago. Building a beautiful new house might be a fine thing to do today. But what if tomorrow the stock market collapses, the economy plunges into deep depression, and half your savings is gone? Then building a new house wouldn't be such a good thing to do. There, there may be a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven, as the wise man said, but that doesn't mean that every time is the right time for everything. We're coming to the end of a series we've been calling It's About Time. And today we're faced with the question, what time is it? Have you ever checked the clock and then gone back to what you're doing, thinking you have plenty of time before your next appointment? So you work for a while and you glance up again and go right back to what you were doing. But a little later, when you look at the clock, you realize that the hands are in exactly the same position they were before. The clock isn't running and you have no idea what time it is. So suddenly, knowing what time it is becomes your top priority. This morning, I want us to find out what time it is. Is this the time, in the words of that passage from Ecclesiastes, to plant or uproot? Is it time to kill or to heal? Is it time to tear down or to build up? And yes, I almost went into the bird's song right there. It just wanted to come out of me. What time is it? Our text, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Follow along as I read. I'll be reading out of the NIV 2011. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. That's that word we've seen over and over again. Present time translates the word kairos. Do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. In verse 11, Paul calls his readers to check the time, because it may be later than they think. Look, look at verse 10. And do this understanding the present time, or literally knowing the time, knowing the kairos, If you don't know the time, you probably don't know what you ought to be doing. There's a fascinating story in 2 Kings chapter 5 about the prophet Elisha and his right-hand man, Gehazi. The prophet had just done something spectacular for a foreign dignitary who in gratitude offered him an enormous donation, which 
Elisha politely but firmly turned down. After the dignitary left, Gehazi secretly chased him down and told him this fictitious story about a need that had just cropped up at the school of the prophets. He further lied by telling them that Elisha had changed his mind and would be grateful for anything he could do for the school. The dignitary gave him much more than a small donation, which Gehazi then stowed out of sight and went back to the prophet. But Elisha wasn't fooled. He knew where Gehazi had gone, knew what he'd done. And so he gave him a chance to confess. When he wouldn't, he told him he knew all about it. And then he said something unexpected, something I'd never seen before until Kevin pointed it out to me, our son Kevin pointed it out to me recently. Instead of rebuking Gehazi for his deceit and his greed, the prophet asked him this question. Is this the time to take money? Or accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, or men servants and maidservants? Those are probably the things that Gehazi hoped to acquire with the money he had just taken. Is this the time? At some other time, Elisha himself might have accepted the dignitary's money, but not at this time. See, Elisha knew what time it was, but Gehazi didn't. And so he did something he never should have done, something that cost him for the rest of his life. It's clear in Romans chapter 13 that Paul knew what time it was. And because he knows the time, he knows what he should be doing. What time is it? Look at verse 11. It's time to wake up. Time to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. It's time to wake up. It's time to get busy. When I was a boy, my parents, even though they were unchurched, made my brother and me get down on our knees at our bedside every night and pray before we went to sleep. I think that was my mother, who had grown up in a uh, Christian home, who was behind that. The prayer she taught us was, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, that gave me nightmares. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I think Paul takes that prayer and he turns it on its head. He doesn't say, if we should die before we wake. He says, let's wake before we die. Wake up. Check the clock. It's time to rise. It's time to get busy. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. The night isn't over yet. And it's often darkest just before dawn. The world's pretty dark right now. But check the time. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. It's time to wake up and get busy. It is not time, verse 13, for carousing and drunkenness or for sexual immorality and debauchery or for dissension and jealousy. Now, a lot of us good church people read those words and we say, well, I should think not. I don't carouse or get drunk or engage in sexual immorality. Well, good for you. That's wonderful. And I mean that. But what about engaging in dissension and jealousy? Those two words appear more often in the New Testament than the other four combined. Scholars say that the word translated in the NIV as dissension describes party rivalry, a me-against-you attitude of strife and contention. Does that sound familiar to you after the last election? But we can't think about this word just in terms of the secular sphere. In the New Testament, it's most often used about relationships in the church. 
where that me against you, us against them attitude raises its ugly head. Paul says there's no time for that. And what about jealousy? We tend to think of jealousy only in terms of romantic relationships. But the word that's used here is bigger than that. It refers to the anger and resentment that occur when we think someone's putting himself or herself above us. It's that who does he think he is attitude. And we can experience it at home or at work or on the road or with family or friends or strangers. Its presence in our lives indicates that there is room for us to grow in humility. Paul says about all of these things, there's no time for that. There's no time for crowsing or getting drunk, no time for sexual immorality or rivalry or jealousy. Not now. The hour is too late. Look back at verse 11. And do this understanding, literally knowing, the time. What does Paul have in mind there? What is the this to which he refers? The thing we're supposed to be doing. Do this. Look at the text. And do this, refers back to verse 8, to love. What time is it, Paul? Paul's answer is, it is time to love. He starts this section in verse 8, and we need to go back there. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Let me give you a literal rendering of that verse. No one, nothing, owe. That's awkward in English, but it's acceptable in Greek and quite emphatic. No one, nothing, owe, except to love one another. When in verse 11 Paul says, do this, he's talking about that, about loving one another. Now is the time, the kairos, the favorable moment, the opportune time to love one another. What should we be doing now? We should be loving one another. If you ask the great apostle what time it is, he would say it's time to love one another. There are two ways to approach this life that is acceptable to God. You can focus on the things to avoid, and there really are things you ought to avoid. Or you can focus on the things you ought to do. It seems to me, and I think to Paul, that the best way to avoid the things you ought to avoid is to focus on the things you ought to do. In this case, loving one another. Whenever I go bowling, which is about once a year, at the the newcomer's bowling event, I have a routine that my dad taught me a long time ago. I carefully place the toe of my left shoe on the second dot from the left, And then I aim for that third arrow from the right. That's my spot. I don't try to avoid the gutters. I don't even think about the gutters. I try to hit that spot. Now, if I focused on avoiding the gutters, one thing's for certain. That's where my ball would end up every time. The best way to avoid the gutter is to aim for the spot. For Paul, the gutters were carousing and drunkenness, sexual immorality and debauchery, dissension and jealousy. He didn't want to go there. He didn't want us to go there. There's no time for that stuff. Yet his focus was not on avoiding those things, but on hitting the spot. And the spot he aimed at was love. Verse 8, he who loves has fulfilled the law. That's something Jesus taught and that the early church remembered. Jesus once said the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And the second, 
he said, was to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he added all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So what time is it? It's time to love. But who are we to love? Verse 8 says we're to love one another, which in our situation means loving fellow Christians, both inside Lockwood and outside. Later in verse 8, we're to love our fellow man. That's the NIV 84. Or others, that's the NIV 2011. And because of that translation, I chose to read it out of the 2011 today. That comes closer to the original while trying to avoid the gender-exclusive language of the earlier NIV. Or, as the Greek simply has it, love the other. And then, in both the verse 9 quote from Leviticus 19, and in verse 10, we're to love our neighbor. Love one another, love the other, love the neighbor. What time is it? It's time to love. Who am I to love? The answer is everyone. Your fellow Christ followers, the significant or insignificant other, whoever that may be, parent, child, spouse, boss, teacher, friend, enemy, stranger, your neighbor, which means the person who happens to be near you or nigh you, your nigh-bor, Old English. Your neighbor may be a fellow Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or an atheist. Your neighbor may like you or hate you or not even know you. Your neighbor is anyone who happens to be within the reach of your love. This is the time, the kairos, the, the right moment, the acceptable time to love. This is the time God has ordained when love, not guns, not politics, not money, when love will make the difference. If you want to make a difference in the world, in your world, in your family, in yourself, love. Dare to do it. It wasn't without reason that St. Paul wrote, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. But how can we love everybody? I mean, everybody. Love is costly. It's tiring. It depletes us. Yes, love is tiring. It tires what Paul calls the old self with its practices. Wears it out. It depletes the whining, false self with its pride. And it's costly. It costs the old corrupted self. That's Ephesians 4.22. Costs that old corrupted self its very existence. But do you see? That's God's plan. While you are busy loving your neighbor, loving the other, loving each other, you, without knowing it, are being transformed. The biblical word sanctified. God has given us the means to change who we are, to become what we never could be on our own, but are destined to be by his grace. And that means it's love. Love drowns the old, corrupted, dying self in the very medium God is using to create the new, glorified, eternal self. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Paul calls this love a debt. How am I indebted to the person who happens to be near me at the moment, my nibor? How am I indebted to a stranger who's never done anything for me? The answer, I think, is I'm not. I don't owe the stranger anything. 
I don't know the person in line in front of me at the grocery store thing. I don't own the illegal immigrant working in the field the time of day. But I do owe the time of day to someone. Looking at verse 8. I said earlier, the literal translation runs like this. No one, nothing, owe. Or continue to owe. Because it's a present tense verb in Greek. No one, nothing, continue to owe except to love. Well, how do I owe someone love who's never loved me? I don't, but I do owe it to the one who has given love to me. I'm in debt to him, and he has told me to make payments on that debt to my fellow Christ followers, to my neighbor, to the other. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did to one of the least of these, for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did for me. When I show him love by loving the people he cares about, whether my spouse, the guy in the line in front of me, the worker in the field, his spirit actively works in me and I'm transformed. Everything we do for the purpose of spiritual growth, whether it's Bible reading, attending worship, praying, fasting, giving, all the spiritual disciplines, whatever we do is effective when done out of love for God and inert when done for any other reason. Love for God is the catalyst. But if I love people for Christ's sake, not for their sake, but for Christ's sake, doesn't that demean them and make my love for them mere pretense? Not at all. In fact, just the opposite is true. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, this is C.S. Lewis, When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. That insight by C.S. Lewis, written to a friend in 1952, is full of light. Love for God increases my capacity to love others, my spouse, my family, and everyone else. It increases my capacity because it increases me. It makes me more than I was so that I can love more than I could. What time is it? It is time to love. Love whom? Love God by loving others. This is the time. This is the moment when love can change things. You've given up on your spouse, but you haven't loved him for Christ's sake. There's a woman at work that drives you crazy. Why not try loving God by loving her? This is the time that love makes a difference. God's calling us to love. I'll close with a story. Tim Winton is a a novelist. In fact, he's Australia's most celebrated novelist. When he was five years old, his dad was knocked off a motorcycle by a drunk driver, was in a coma for weeks. In a televised interview, Winton said that when his dad finally came home, and I'll just quote, he was sort of recognizable but not really my dad, you know. They put him in the chair and, you know, said, here's your dad. And I was horrified. 
Word got out about what had happened around the neighborhood. People found out, and one day, Wenton's mother answered a knock at the door. And boy, was I tempted to do this in my best Australian accent, but I'd probably ruin everything for all of you. So, so this guy said, Oh, good day. My name's Len, and I heard your husband, hubby's a bit crook. So in Australia, that meant he's not well. I heard your hubby's a bit crook. Anything I can do? Second service, I have to use my accent. <laughs> I ran out of things that he says now. That guy that came to the door, his name was Lynn Thomas. And he was from the church, just down the street. He heard about it, and he just showed up. And this is what Wenton said. He said, he just showed up, and he used to carry my dad from bed. This guy didn't know him at all. And, and put him in the bath. And he used to bathe him, which in the 1960s in Australia and the suburbs was not the sort of thing you'd see every day. And this act of love from just one guy, one solitary Christian, had a lasting, profound effect. When says, it really touched me. Watching a grown man, he's just a kid, bother for nothing to show up and wash a sick man. You know, it really affected me. He called it a strangely sacrificial act and said it transformed his whole family. They all came to faith in Christ, including Australia's most celebrated novelist. And those effects are rippling out to this day. Why? Because this is the time. It's the kairos. It's the opportune moment to love. You think, I've tried everything. But have you tried love? The glad eternal debt that we owe God is gratefully paid, though never diminished, in the currency of love. What time is it? It's time to love. To love God by loving your fellow Christian, by loving your family, your neighbor, even your enemy. Now is the acceptable time. It's the kairos of love. Now. Before it's too late. Let's pray. God, I pray you'll put in our hearts and our minds how you want us to express our love to you and to which people you're calling us to love right now. Lord, you know us, you made us, you know we're dust. We get blown here and there all the time. Little emotion blows us off the path of love. So we ask for your grace to do what we can't do. With the help of your spirit. Lord, not only put that person in our heart and mind right now, but keep that person there. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>